Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santee. Super, super excited today to tell you that the guest is Michael Gramling. Hi, Michael. Hey, how you doing, Heather? I'm good. I'm so glad that you agreed to come on and talk to us all uh, about about this new work that 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 I'm I'm reading. Um, which I'll get to in a minute. But first, what would you like folks to know about yourself? Huh. Well, <laughs> uh, I've been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been very, very. Um, active in advocating for not just the well-being of children, but uh, also for um, racial and social justice. It's sort of a uh, my dual passions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do write quite a bit uh, about some of the uh, issues that show up in this book um, and uh, about inequity uh, mm-hmm. and the way that um, and how that plays out in early childhood education and in, um, yeah, and in child care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so some listeners will know, will know you, of course, already, because you have written a lot. Um, but also I talk about your uh, Great Disconnect book a lot, I feel like in episodes. That's one of my, um, my go-tos, uh, one that I hang on to. In fact, I, um, a couple of years ago, had to buy a new copy so I could re-highlight <laughs> too messy um so thank you for that but the book that we're going to talk about today is called um the book is child care justice transforming the system of care for young children um it's edited by maurice sykes and kyra ostendorf published by teachers college press and it's a collection of essays essentially um you know this (laughs) um excuse me and you wrote one called i'm struggling with my voice i've had a bad cough child care justice a human right um that you've included in here um which again is uh prolifically highlighted is that is that a good adjective for highlighting prolific yeah Yeah, i think so that works yeah Um, which yeah yeah use it as you wish you have my permission um so we're going to start with this quote that comes from the end of the essay and kind of just work through a conversation okay all right so so what you wrote michael at the end of the essay is If the early childhood workforce wishes to participate in meaningful change to bring about childcare justice, we must be engaged in the broader movement for racial justice, Um, which which summarizes the discussion of the essay really well. But you wanted to to use that as our focus for the start um, when I sent you several quotes. So uh, talk a little bit about what what you mean there and what that might uh look like for us for the people who are trying to be 
um, uh, more involved in this social justice and racial justice act actions? Well, I guess, uh, yeah, to back it up a little bit, when uh, Marie Sykes and, and Kira uh, Altendorf first approached me and wanted to contribute to this uh, amazing uh, collection. So good. Together, uh, they said they wanted me to do a chapter on uh, it sort of inquiring, it is, is a child care a human right? Um, and I said, well, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Um, but in my heart, <laughs> oh, well, it sounds like such an amazing book. This is not this is not my first choice. Uh, I, I kind of wish that uh, they had uh, chosen me, say, to do the pedagogy of poverty or mm. something, uh, something more in my wheelhouse. Uh -huh. uh, quite wisely, I want to say that they gave that assignment to uh, Ioma Roca. Yeah, and she killed it. So she I'm, really did. So I'm good. Glad I stayed out of the way of that. And uh, I am um, going to refer to what she says when I'm out in the world talking about these issues. Uh -huh. um, so, and I was saying, you know, when we first did our introductions, I'm sort of a foot soldier in the movement for human rights. I, I show up, I march, I write. Uh, sometimes somebody hands me a microphone and I will also speak. Um, in my professional life, I do write about the lack of high quality child care uh, as sort of part of the uh, deprivation and trauma of poverty, uh, particularly how uh, that kind of deprivation and trauma um, affect brain development. Mm. Uh, and because uh, a lot of, as you know, from my book that we're, we're really, really looking at in early childhood education it's not education necessarily the way we think about education. It's brain development. Mm -hmm. And you can't really take that out and say, okay, we'll put children in a classroom and educate them. Um, what you have to say is, oh my God, look at the circumstances uh, that they find themselves in. And most importantly, I think that their parents find themselves in. Mm -hmm. um, it's such a mistake to sort of try to address the needs of children without like, sort of like to bypass parents. Right. Uh, uh, and it's a, a theme I uh, return to a lot in, in this chapter that um, to, to sort of, to try to bypass parents is, is really part of this false narrative of uh, blaming the victim. Right. Uh, and so that's, that's like a, so the system of oppression affects parents that in turn affects children. Right. I think that that's sort of the approach we take. Yeah. Uh, and so, one of the reasons that I get so squeamish about any conversations about universal pre-K being the thing that's going to solve all these problems um, or, or that the lower income children, whatever label they're going to give them are the ones who need the education yeah right Almost, yeah and, and what is the education you know yeah. teach them to line up and shut up and uh, recite <laughs> the alphabet yes uh, yeah it's a it's a miseducation at mm -hmm. best mm -hmm. uh yeah so uh yeah we could go a long time if you got me started on that um but but so but when i when i uh to sort of circle back around yeah, i do sorry. talk about uh lack of high quality child care 
as part of that deprivation and part of that trauma that affects brain development. But when I write about it professionally, I don't necessarily frame it as a human right. Uh, and to be, you know, totally honest, truth and fashion, um, I really felt like I, uh, in that sort of litany of woe, uh, of the kinds of things that uh, children and adults face. Uh, the lack of child care almost seemed to me an afterthought when you compare it to, uh, say, food insecurity, mm -hmm. uh, mass incarceration, uh, some other, you know, lack of prenatal care and, mm -hmm. and what damage that does at an early age. So... I have to say, I struggled with it. I was really, I was really stuck. I, I kind of said, where do I go with this? And I felt like I was a, uh, a 10th grader um, working on a homework assignment. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so, so I kind of acted that way. Uh -huh. And I, uh, I started looking through the various uh, international conventions uh, about, uh, human rights and say, okay, where does childcare fit in that sort of uh, canon of things that people are entitled to that support their dignity above all else? And it's, it's there, I should say that it's there. Um, but the thing is, is that the United States has never ratified any of those conventions. Mm -hmm. So we're not really bound by them. Mm -hmm. um, but while while I was reading all these uh, conventions and where we stood in relationship, we being this country we live in, I discovered that one of the um, articles uh, of one of those conventions is uh, that uh, it's absolutely uh, unacceptable. I mean, that's not a strong enough word for there to be in any country allowed to execute children for crimes, minor mm -hmm. children for crimes. And uh, that, again, that was something that the United States had uh, refused to ratify. And it finally reached the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decided that, yes, in fact, you could not do that in this country. And that's been the final word for many years. But then I thought to myself, well, what is, that's true. But what, what do these justices uh, how did they just how did they justify that right <laughs> uh, it's we don't ratify the conventions is not really in the constitution mm -hmm. so I said okay I'm going to read the opinion right what's the majority opinion on this and here's what they claimed in their opinion which just oh, I don't know they say that there exists an evolving standard of decency and a national consensus to eliminate this form of punishment for children. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks and suddenly I knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, uh, two things. Um, one is that my job in writing this chapter is to push forward that evolving standard of decency. Mm -hmm. And not to say that childcare is uh, uh, the focus of that uh, evolving standard of decency, but to say that the evolving of standard of decency says that poverty and systemic racism are not acceptable. Mm -hmm. 
And within that, that is how you address the very real need for childcare and the very real need for the respect and dignity of childcare workers and the need for children to be uh, the, their right, the right of children to have a childhood mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in uh, our early uh, childhood classrooms and in childcare. So all of that sort of like says, okay, so this is gonna be about addressing all of the myths that perpetuate uh, systemic racism and systemic poverty. And in, and in building a different narrative. And then what is actually particularly then within that, the role of the early childhood profession in, in seeing that that is what it's gonna take mm -hmm. and how, how do they either support the narrative of the oppressor or how do they challenge it? So all that came to me all at once. So that's what I'm <laughs> gonna write about. And then the second thing that hit me, duh, but I had just been handed the mic. And I said, yeah. okay, I'm going to run with this. So that's kind of uh, how I took it. And I, I went back and look what I had written so far in sort of the 10th grade term paper approach. And what really struck me is because I was using these uh, conventions as sort of my backdrop, is that it, the first two pages were like a whitewash, right? Said. So, because they took the total, the, it was written totally from a white point of view. Uh -huh. And that just grabbed me up short. I went, oh my goodness. And then I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. When I write about all of these false narratives and the different roles, the different, uh, the way they are pushed forward, um, I'm going to whitewash it. I'm just going to keep writing it that way for several pages. Uh -huh. And because it seems so reasonable. <laughs> and then I would switch in the middle and say, yeah, I hope everybody like read this and, and really, you know, thought it was made sense and wants to be part of it. It's kind of a tidy narrative, but it's a whitewash. And then <laughs> let me tell you all the different places that it's a whitewash. Yeah. And, I went there, and that's what brought me and the reader, hopefully to the conclusion that you can't really push for something like high quality universal childcare uh, without understanding that it is systemic racism that prevents us from, from what? From building that narrative, from building that uh, consensus, that, that standard of decency. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of, kind of walked try to the reader through that journey yeah well that explains why as i'm looking back over the the chapter now there's some highlighting in the first part but i get to the second part and it's like all <laughs> all highlighted it got me yeah you got me oh good yes that's what i'm hoping yeah yeah, yeah. I, I was handing it out to you know my immediate family to get their comment and my youngest daughter is just a social racial justice firebrand uh -huh. and, uh, and she read it and <laughs> she was thoroughly embarrassed she oh. said i didn't catch that at all yeah i said yeah i know right <laughs> and which is sort of what our oppressors count on yes oh now i've got to go read it again <laughs> <laughs> right uh, all right well done 
Thank you. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so I turned this assignment that I kind of thought, uh, okay, I'll do it, uh, uh -huh. into something else that was like, uh, I don't know, it was kind of, uh, well, it was fun for one, uh -huh. but it was also, uh, you know, uh, a lot of eye-opening thinking for me as well. So, I, yeah. yeah, I got into it. Yeah. Um, so, so you talked early, early in, in your um, sort of deconstruction of the opening quote, you talked about how we have to, it's not enough to just focus on the education of the children. Once we get them in their spaces, we have to look at families. Um, and you, one of the things you wrote um, was when parents, when parents prosper, children prosper. When parents no longer must rely on a patchwork of government handouts plagued by uncertain funding and eligibility criteria, um, when parents become self-sufficient, dignity will follow and the children will be well. So I think dignity is another thing that's missing when we talk about, um, even when we are talking about things that would support families and sort of address uh, the stress of poverty and um you know the food insecurity and all those things that you talked about we we don't often hear dignity in those conversations in fact we hear a lot of insults usually in those conversations yeah and yeah. um sort of coded racism in there sometimes yeah. yes very much so yeah i mean when for example one of the false narratives is that uh there's no reason anybody is poor that mm -hmm. there's plenty of jobs right? And yeah. anyone who wants to doesn't have to be poor. And so the the subtext to that is, well, then let's look around and see who's poor. Well, disproportionately folks of color. So obviously then the racist interpretation of that is, well, then uh, uh, people of color just don't want to work, mm -hmm. right? So that's that's how you get to that, or right. that, that way to say this is what it's about. And yeah, so one of the debunking of those myths that I did was I, I went back to uh, uh, the um, sudden appearance of women in the workforce mm -hmm. during World War II, at the beginning of World War II, you know, Rosie the Riveter and all that, and uh, how up until World War II, all through the Great Depression, the women represented a very, very small portion of the labor force it was all men and then bam suddenly now men are being marched off to war and now women come in huge numbers mm -hmm. which totally affects of course and highlights that there's no such thing as child care right <clears throat> and that what it, it totally debunks that myth that people don't work because they don't want to mm -hmm. right uh that there's plenty of jobs well no there weren't the war created those jobs and the absence of men in particular gave the space for women and women of color to a lesser mm -hmm. extent to participate. And that really hasn't changed. When you look at participation in the labor force now, you know, throw a dart at any county in the country and it's going to be around 60% during good times, less than 60%. So that means you've got 40% or more of the population not participating. So when you know that how rapidly that can change mm -hmm. uh, as the economy changes, for instance, it's all about job creation and it's all about having the resources to go to work, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and uh, 
so the uh, the barriers for people outside the workforce are immense. And if you were really going to have, uh, if you're going to have universal child care and all these other litany of woes addressed, it will take such an enormous redistribution of wealth mm-hmm. and a national will to do that, to create an economy where there are actually jobs enough for people and uh, wages that pay living wages. Right. And then that patchwork we talked about, that, okay, well, I need childcare. I have to apply here. It's got these criteria. Mm-hmm. Only the state legislature is going to change them next month. So I won't be <laughs> Yeah. The waiting list is like, you know, two years, mm-hmm. which then my kid will be in, you know, elementary school. So never mind. Mm-hmm. And then how much, if I get it, how much does it pay? Well, not enough. Um, so you, you, so rather depend on that patchwork. What if we said that the people who needed childcare because say they were going to school or had jobs, what if they were paid enough that they could pay for childcare mm-hmm. and food and shelter and yeah. the doctor's office and had health insurance and all of that. So mm-hmm. it's really, really backwards to try and piecemeal assistant as if it's to undeserving parents. Um, which the other thing that engenders, I think, and then, you know, stop me anytime. No. <laughs> that it's much easier for people who want to help children to, to kind of blame parents and, and go straight to the right. child. I think these, these charities you see on TV are, are masters of that. Where yeah. we're gonna we're gonna save the children, or we're gonna heal the children, or we're gonna feed the children, um, and that's what that quote that she read is trying to say. Say yeah. you know, seriously, <laughs> you know, children really aren't in poverty. I mean, we can figure the the number of them that live in homes that are in poverty. Okay, but it's their parents who are in poverty. Right. Right. Yeah. That's and, true. We we try to just isolate this idea of a child because right. we think we're a nation that values children. We think right. that, you know, we, you know, we pay lip service and we have all the rhetoric in place. You know, yeah. they're our future and they're our best resource. And um, yes. even the investment narrative for supporting child care feeds that too. Like, you know, they'll, right. Uh, right. Uh, so, I mean, then maybe they grow, they'll grow up and they won't be poor. Yeah. Well, not if there's not any jobs. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And what happens tying back to your your point about brain development earlier? What happens to their brain development while we're waiting for that yes. magical future day yes. <laughs> when everybody's problems are solved uh, right. because of the quote unquote high quality child care they got? Exactly. Uh, now, yeah. So yeah. It's a, uh, you know, I think I say somewhere in the in the opening that you know, yeah, child care is one of those things that are a piece of that deprivation. But kids don't really need childcare. Mm-hmm. Parents need childcare. Right. Right. And if you could provide high quality childcare, A, of course that would benefit kids because high quality childcare would support brain development. Yeah. But then that also um, it supports parents. It's parents who need childcare. And if you look at, look at the poverty rate, for example, of, single moms with children under five Mm -hmm. it's like in most most places you look anywhere throw a dart it's like 50 percent or more Mm -hmm. and why is that well how do you even look for a job when there's no such thing as child care or you don't have transportation or a phone right Uh, 
or the internet. Yeah. Uh, all of the very basics, they're not there. The prerequisites are gone and you're just out there on an island somewhere. Yeah. And so what good does it do to like, uh, you know, include their child in toys for tots? That's really not right. much of a solution. Right. Uh, yeah. And well, and. Uh... Oh, I just lost my thoughts. <laughs> Stay with me. Come <laughs> too. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it was going to be a good one, I promise, but it's gone. Hopefully, <laughs> you don't do this live, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I also don't edit, so that'll be in the. Oh, okay. Well, good. <laughs> the listeners will not be surprised. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I was going to say, you know, we also have then our cultural puritanical morality that comes in there and says, well, single moms, you know. It's, oh, because true. Of, it's because of the sin of being a single mom that they're in poverty and that, you know, if they just had made better choices then yeah, um, but, uh, but if we value the children, like we say we do, then we would be willing to look differently at the mom who needs help. Yes. Right. Supporting. You got to value parents. If you can't value parents and you yeah. are barking up the wrong tree, you're just, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Doing something to please yourself. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so can I ask you about the NACI position statement part about this because that I felt was like bold and really I, I know I took a deep breath with that one yeah, yeah. I, uh, I mean I just said I don't edit but I, I guess I will if you don't want to talk about <laughs> no let's go with that first yeah. of all okay yeah I think that that NACI has written an equity statement is excellent yes okay so Absolutely. that's that's that is so important yes and they are doing a lot to bring the idea into the the general conversation of early childhood Right, that it matters. Okay. Yes. And yes. that's good. What I think what comes with the with the position of two very what I think are the most prominent early childhood organizations and how and how they influence uh policy and and uh, and the whole profession. One of them is NACI mm-hmm. and the other one is Head Start. Yeah. And uh so I think both of those agencies have a very, very specific responsibility when we go back to why I wrote the chapter, which is to push forward mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the evolving standard of decency. And to whatever extent they are doing that, that's great. And, and there are things that they do that do that, but, but what they say matters. Yeah. Right. And so what I think about the, the, what, what Macy did in their equity statement, I think, well, how do you write a statement about equity and not talk about how in our profession, the disproportionate number of children of color who are referred for what? For learning disabilities, mm-hmm. for behavior, yeah, right? For behavior, for, for mental health, for uh, all sorts of uh, deficits compared to white children right so that that would be to me the very first thing that would be in the statement about equity so what does it say about us and the lens that our profession has um and i think that's right if you if you were to look say at head start and look to see who's being referred for behavior mm-hmm. and who's being referred uh, for uh you know mental health referrals or learning disabilities well First of all, it's going to be overwhelmingly boys. Mm-hmm, right. Right. And then when you break that down, you're going to find a disproportionate representation of children of color. And you find that anywhere. Right. So 
to me, that should be front and center. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then I think you should use stronger language. And that's what I also talk about. I say, how can you, how can you just not say racism? Mm -hmm. It's a word bias. You know, it's like, uh, I don't know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure around. Uh, but it's not, it's not what it is. It's not a bias. Right. It's, it's structural, right? It's yeah. not the individual uh, predilections of a particular teacher mm -hmm. uh, that are to blame. So you have to look at it systemically. What right. are we doing when we train and hire and do professional development and provide oversight? What are we doing that explicitly addresses those kinds of yeah. biases that uh, are to the detriment of children of color? Yeah. How can you not say that? How can you how can you write that and call it an equity statement? Right. So I'm sorry, and I know I, I probably hurt feelings and made people mad, and uh, and and uh, but I just sometimes you just have to say, look, guys. Yeah. You know, and that's sort of yeah. sort of what well, I did. <laughs> this is yeah, and I you know I say that that sort of made me gasp when I read that that yeah. part. Um, but it's but it's spot on. I mean, that's why there was like, oh, I didn't even think about. You know, I was like, yeah, this is a necessary statement. We need to look at these issues. But mm -hmm. I didn't think about what you, you know, what you point out is that, you know, one of the things that was like, they they talk about privileged groups, but they don't say white people and white right. people are the privileged group. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, there's no reason for that other than, you know, and I'm guilty of this too, as I'm teaching students or whatever, I try to so sort of use softer language because I don't want to, all my students are white usually. <laughs> um yeah. but but that explicit language change could be such a shift and and yes. is so necessary yeah 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 and uh i think and i, I call out head start which i you know it's awful because i love head start head yeah. start has been my career i started out as a classroom teacher oh okay yeah i was yeah. a head start parent right oh wow okay yeah 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 in fact uh Every one of my kids, in one way or another, attended Head Start, uh -huh. and that's uh, and so as I do, when I do uh, presentations and training, I always say, "Well, yeah, I've been on both sides of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been the one that's uh, you know, wanting to thinking I need to blame the parent uh, for this kid's <laughs> behavior. Uh -huh. Also, been the parent that's that's sitting there, and the teacher says, "Does she act this way at home?" Yeah, <laughs> and I go. No. Yeah. I can just see the look on their face. They're yeah. going, yeah, right. Yeah. They're you know? talking about you in the break room. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're right. talking about your denial. Yeah, I'm totally the bad parent. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know where I was going with that either. So yep. uh, <laughs> perfect. Uh, yeah. Um, but um, so Head Start, um, Head Start is cool in that it honors parents. And when you talk about dignity, Mm -hmm. I think what that's one thing I love about Head Start is that parents are decision makers, and you won't find that most any place right. else. Uh, and you don't have to be on uh, the board of directors to be, you know, like the the token parent on the board or something. But you're actually decision makers. You're decision makers in policy at the local level, and in the operation of the program at the local level. Mm -hmm. 
and I, I see a, I see parents like wear that mantle of dignity and I say yeah you guys go for it right <laughs> yeah uh, but then you also have to look at how do you push the narrative and again um which is what if I had written about the pedagogy of poverty uh-huh. which uh, I, I do when I write grants by the way um I'd say well but what do you do you treat the education of children as if the children uh, are a set of deficits. Mm-hmm. They're a set of minuses on the assessment. And our job is to get a per- certain percentage of those minuses pluses before you leave us. Um, the pedagogy of poverty really is that low-income children and children of color can't learn. Mm-hmm that we're going to have to break it down into tiniest pieces. I use this one when I, when I do my presentations all the time. I talk about the word on, okay? And I say, look at this. Um, you guys, is it not true, for addressing my audience of teachers, that you actually do an assessment. And one of the things you try to find out from a three-year-old is if they understand the meaning of the word on. Is that not true? <laughs> I go, well, yeah. And I say, and then if it turns out the child doesn't give you the response you're looking for, is it not also true that you write a lesson plan and do some instruction until you're quite confident that the child learns the word on? Mm-hmm. And they go, yeah. And then I say, I can't tell you what total nonsense that is. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, and, I'm hooked. You've got me. Yeah. So you totally, <laughs> you were totally, uh, looking at that child is incapable of learning mm-hmm. when in fact that child who might not have responded to like is it on the table or under the table is thinking to themselves what is this a trick question is there something wrong with this teacher are they brain damaged why is she <laughs> asking me that you're kidding me because not only does the three-year-old or the two-year-old i would venture to say the one-year-old yeah. know that the cup is on the table but they know that they have to be to school on time they have to have their shoes and socks on. They can't watch TV until they turn it on. You better not light a, a match because something might catch on fire. Mm-hmm. And dad is pretty happy today. He's on a roll. Uh, <laughs> and I could go on. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so that one little, that's your clue. That's your key to the pedagogy of poverty. Because once we are assured that the child knows that one meaning of the two-letter word, then we're going to say, okay, does he know beside? Does he know under? You know, you, you, every child zero to three, and I think I said this in my, in my book, is an English language learner. Mm-hmm. Their brains are built to acquire language, understand concepts, engage in critical thinking in a way that they will never have again the rest of their lives. And then we talk about equity. Why doesn't why doesn't Nacy talk about equity and say, okay, let's look at rich kid preschool. Let's look at Montessori. Let's mm-hmm. look uh you know at Reggio. Let, let's look at uh, all of these other great curricula and how these children, which if if you've read the whole book, mm-hmm. Look, look at uh, uh, Ilma Hiroki's uh, beginning quote. It's absolutely killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, May, if you got it. Yeah, I've really. got it. Let me find her. Yeah, it's just so killer. 
Hold on. Kind of got you your poverty. Yep. Oh, it's earlier. This is great pod too. As I look things up in books, I do this. That's good. Okay. Too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right at home. Yeah. Everybody's getting out their copy now. Right. Right. Pedagogy of poverty. Oh, right there. Yep. I've read it. Okay. It's just the it's the richer framework that got me. Okay. So her opening quote is. In schools across the United States, many children of color are forced to walk in prison-like lines with silent quote-unquote bubbles in their mouths and hands behind their backs. In other schools, meanwhile, young white children walk in zigzag formations, taking their time, chatting, joking, and sometimes singing with their friends. And that quote comes from Jennifer Keyes Adair and Kiyomi Sanchez Sakuki Colgrove. I hope I got that name right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's a that's that's a punch that's it right yeah and i can guarantee you they don't sit around learning the word on <laughs> okay so uh because there is uh total respect for their intellectual abilities mm -hmm. uh, and and their need for autonomy and making decisions it is totally what all of those things that you find in upscale uh early childhood education classrooms emphasize well, that approach is free. You know, mm -hmm. you can do that in any classroom, uh, but it's not what you find right. uh, in a, in in childcare mm -hmm. for lower uh, income kids, and it's not what you find in Head Start. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's like a massive. You know, that's why like the book got called the Great Disconnect. And uh, shout out to Kira Isendorf. Yeah, she Isendorf. She uh, like that was her title. So thank you. Oh. Here. Yes, it great. is a great disconnect between what we know about how children are, what their potential is, what their actual abilities are, and then how we educate them. Yeah. If they're poor, if they're children of color, how do we educate them? Right. Completely different. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And so when you do that, okay, so it goes back again to the narrative, right? If we're going to promote an evolving standard of decency, then we don't treat children this way in our programs. You will in fact become a beacon that says, no guys, poverty is not the fault of the people in poverty because look at this. Mm -hmm. Look at what these children are accomplishing when you treat them as if they're capable. Yeah. I think they're part of that for me anyway, is when we talk in general about um or there's a, I'll say a disconnect too, between individual child. And then once they're in a group, there's something that switches and we, the group is dehumanized sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we believe, we, we think we, we say we believe that children are competent and we have individual children in mind, but we get them in groups and we have to move them through schedules and we have to keep everything quote unquote structured. And we have um, right. this deficit guiding framework then it's yeah. really hard to to uh, act on our uh, rhetoric about what we think about children. I think so. Yeah, the, yeah. and uh, it's uh, it's you know it's kind of how I spend all my time talking to Head Start programs about yeah. about this. Is yeah, that, you know, treat children like people, guys. Exactly. Finally, <laughs> yeah. so, um, boils down to that. Yeah, yeah. So you said. Um, uh well i guess i i guess i don't need a quote for this i just want to ask what are some then maybe 
concrete? How does this look in real life with people who are doing the work in the field? Um, well, because I think well, we sort of sit and think, well, that's a policy thing. And I've got to wait for a policy to be able right. to, to move us in a different direction. But what can we do if well, this is what we decide we believe? Right. Okay. So <laughs> actually the thing, and the reason, again, recall in my first book, The Great Disconnect, is that there is an explicit understanding of what children need, uh, that they need autonomy, that they need a, a very different kind of uh, approach than the one that we see actually on the ground, uh, at least uh, in Head Start and, and in Pre-K. I don't even know if they know, but in Head Start, at least we know uh, what kids need. Uh, and when you, I went back to sort of the, the, uh, the foundational document of Head Start, mm -hmm. the one that's highly responsible for like teaching the word on, is uh, that it breaks down as, uh, as does pre-K and uh, most any other uh, early childhood program, it breaks down things into domains and then the domains into subdomains. And finally, we get down to the behaviors that demonstrate mastery. Mm -hmm. of a particular domain, right? Mm -hmm. And those tiny steps are assessed, like the word on or the color blue or the letter A, they're, they're all assessed. And then our job again is to start addressing the deficits because they don't know that stuff, right? Okay. That's the model. When people look at that framework, that's the model that they adopt. Mm -hmm. right? And And it's scary to them too because the ability of the child to navigate through the micro steps then gets put up on the internet. On the internet, someone mm -hmm. will say, in this classroom, these oh. children made this much progress towards these uh, academic goals or emotional goals or any other kind of goals. Uh -huh. Okay. So then you're accountable, right? And somebody is looking at you to see, did you get them through those micro steps and move the bar graph up to here? Mm -hmm. over period <clears throat> so that's what drives it right yeah but if you look at that same document when you uh there's a, a sort of little preamble to it that says guiding principles and the guiding principles contradict that approach completely oh wow uh-huh yes it says well no actually children you have to remember the children are learning more than one thing at a time yeah no kidding right <laughs> Yeah. starters right and that they are eager and active learners for example and they need lots of uh, uh meaningful play da, 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 da. none of which the micro teaching lends itself mm -hmm. to yeah and much of which is scarce right in the actual way classroom is done so i think people have responded to the accountability and the need to get them through just like it's no different than third graders, you know, we're going to teach to that test because that's all that matters. Right. So I think that's when you ask, you know, if we know, if we understand how children learn, which we do, right, which the folks who publish the uh, outcomes framework know yeah. that, that we know these things about how children learn. Yeah. And so um, part of the work I do is to say, okay, so yes, you are beholden to this, to the bar graphs. I get that. Right. Yeah. But then you're also beholden to these opening paragraphs about who children are and what they need. So we're going to find out a way to make sure that both those things happen in the mm -hmm. classroom. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I think so. That reminds me. I think it's Carol Garhart Mooney in one of her books about theory, child, early childhood theories, says something like, "We we know more now than we ever have about child development and what they need and how it works, and we have more access to it than we've ever had." I'm paraphrasing. So there's no reason for us not to be able to use it. You know, to Thank be you. able to to connect yes. that to yeah. the daily work. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and then the, the elephant in the room is that all of this is um, experienced more extremely, more consistently, and more to the detriment of children uh-huh. completely. Right. right. It is that's that is the uh, that's 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 the underlying theory that no one mentions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so so this might seem kind of backwards in fact it's it's literally backwards but I yeah. um I want to I want to wrap up because we're getting close to an hour even though I could I could listen for much longer <laughs> okay. um but I want to start I wonder if we can close with your opening quote from this chapter where you say and I, again I don't know how, how the pronunciation will be but Kasarian Ingera uh-huh the traditional greeting among the Maasai people of northern Kenya and Tanzania in Swahili means "Are the children well?" Uh-huh. Um, so, so can we wrap it up talking about? I'm so glad you asked. Culture, yeah, <laughs> and, and that, yeah. that different okay. different view. So, uh, back to me struggling at the beginning. Yeah. Right. And uh, not knowing where to go with it, and I, I sent kind of an outline to yeah. uh, Maurice Sykes and Kira Sidorfin said, you know, this is where I am now. And they said, well, this is not really what we thought. Mm. We'd be and that's no surprise. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Maurice sent to me and uh, you can pronounce it better than I can. I even have it in front of me now. Kasari. Kasarian Ingera. I-N-G-E-R-A. Yes, okay. mm-hmm. And it goes on really, it's about two paragraphs long. Uh-huh. Actually, and he sent the whole thing to me, and it said, uh, "It's the traditional greeting of the Maasai people in Kenya uh-huh. that when they, when they come across a you know someone on the road or somewhere, they'll say, uh, how are the children?'" Uh-huh. And the answer is, "Is uh, universally the children are well.'" And then it goes on to say that what this tells you about this particular culture is that they value children. Mm-hmm well-being of the nation that the the well-being of children is the barometer for the well-being of the nation Mm -hmm. um and um that uh so it's a society basically that values children Mm -hmm. and so i took that line by line in my in my mini drafts of this and said yes and but in the united states of america the children are not well, their needs are not attended to, their, our priorities are not children, which in the, the whole Assyria thing, those are all things they'd say, that the children are the priority, priority okay. so forth. So every, every line that they say about that culture, I turn it up on its head and, uh, and say, but in the United States, that's not true. So that was sort of the framework. And, uh, when the final book came out and they only left one line of it, I thought, I wonder if anyone will understand why that's even there. Uh, but that's why it was there. Yeah. It was, uh, it was sort of a, uh, what was that? A, a call and answer. Yeah. Uh, 
Right, this is what I did. I took that and I made it <laughs> answer, but you can't tell that anymore. Was yeah, that well. <laughs> so uh, readers, you can look that up on the internet and mm -hmm. then you can see how I responded to it. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, you know, I just, it, it did remind, it did sort of, for me, my mind went directly to the rhetoric that we use um, <laughs> about how much we value children and then the mismatch yes. with what we do whenever there's a call to do something that right. would that would help um, children in a s systemic way in a bigger culture kind of right. framework lens. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, that was the, I think that was the power of this chapter for me is that um, it just really boldly called out the way we're not valuing children and what, and what we, you know, our, our greater responsibility to then say, oh, okay, we, some things need to change. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> so I appreciate that. And thank you for that. Any, any last things you wanted to talk about that I didn't let you talk about? I, I sort of I started wrapping up, but more than I ever thought I'd have a chance to, I, I did remember why I was talking about the Pope pedagogy of poverty oh, uh -huh. and Start is that, that if the point of our point is, if we want our early childhood institutions to advance the narrative, then that's not the way to do it. Uh -huh. Actually advancing the narrative of the oppressor that people are poor because they are not capable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, that's, uh, it's, it's, it's more, it's, it's bigger than even the damage that we're doing to those particular children, but the overall impact of that allows all of the systemic uh, ways that people are oppressed to continue because no one's questioning that. No right. Wait a minute. Right. And that's, I think that should be the job of the early childhood profession. Say, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, that can be our slogan. From yes, going, okay, going forward. Wait okay. a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll write an epilogue to it. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much um, for this this conversation. I've really enjoyed really enjoyed it um, as I did with this chapter. So I hope folks will now go if they don't already have it, buy this book, read it all but know yes. that you're, you're in there. Um, well, thank you. yeah. It's great, by the it way. It really is. It's really a, a collection of really amazing people. Who yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think I, I tweeted about it when I first got it and first started reading it, and Kira um, uh, you know, responded, if you want to have anyone on the show from the book. So I, I'm like, chapter by chapter, just send them my way. Yeah, really, get them <laughs> we'll, on here. That's we'll wonderful. get them all on here. I'll listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, thank you again for taking time. Um and, and for the contribution that you make uh, and are making to the field. Um, I really appreciate it. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. That's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.